following is a presentation of Refuge Calvary Chapel, Huntington Beach. For more information about our ministry, please visit refugefamily.com. Let me introduce to you uh, Nate Holdridge. He's a senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Monterey. Uh, he's been so gracious to us this weekend because he took over teaching our men's study uh, yesterday morning, our men's breakfast. All right, men. All right, men. He also said, I'll do Saturday night, all the services Sunday morning. And then he says, is there anything else you need me to do? And we're like, could you also do Sunday night? So Nate will be back tonight as well to teach our Sunday night service. Um, he's got a number of books. As you walk out today, he's written uh, six, I think, right? Six books. He's got six books out there that um, he would love for you to, to take a look at. And this one that he uh, has just written is called, uh, well, actually, he shared with us yesterday, Wholehearted Work. Uh, it was great, right, men? Wholehearted work was phenomenal and a reason why it's important uh, that we talk about work in the church because we do it a huge percentage of our lives. And why do we do it? Well, he answers that question in this book. And uh, he also has a new one out on, on Habakkuk, right? A, a study kind of through Habakkuk. So make sure you check that out as well as you leave. And without further ado, Nate Holdridge, everyone. All right. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today and be with you again. I think I was here about five years ago. Uh, We were in Psalm 23 that Sunday, if I remember, and today we're going to be in Psalm 8. So I guess with refuge, I have a thing for the Psalms. We could go there together. Psalm 8. Tonight, uh, we'll be looking at the last three verses of the book of Habakkuk, and we will be thinking about Uh, from those very encouraging and beautiful verses, an unreasonable slash reasonable trust in God. Uh, Feels unreasonable at times because our trust is not based on what we see, uh, but it is very reasonable when you consider who we are leaning upon, leaning upon God. So if you'd like to be encouraged in your faith, I'd encourage you to come back uh, tonight. Uh, But it's great to be here with you guys this weekend. In particular, uh, Pastor Bill reached out to me in the beginning of September and said, hey, I've got a couple of weekends in November. I'd love for you to pray about coming down and sharing with us. And uh, one of the weekends just so happened to be on the weekend of my oldest daughter's birthday this weekend. And uh, she's in her first year of college down here in this area. So it would have been our first uh, birthday for her uh, being separated from her. But because of this invitation, it wasn't. And uh, we were able to see her on Thursday on her birthday. And uh, yeah, we're, we're really happy for her. So 19 years old. She's my oldest of three daughters. So I've got a 19, almost 17-year-old and a 15-year-old daughter. So for that reason, it's also good to be away from home. And uh, everybody loves that joke, but no, I love them, miss them terribly. All right, let's read together Psalm uh, 8. Um, I want to read the whole thing uh, to you if you would follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It's very similar to the New King James Version. Uh, there's a superscription at the beginning. It says, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, which is kind of a musical uh, medley, a Psalm of David. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes 
to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And Father, we come to you today agreeing with that sentiment, praying that prayer. Father, Lord, Master, Sovereign, How majestic, beautiful, wonderful, glorious is your name, your reputation, your character, who you've revealed yourself to be in your word in all the earth. There is no one like you. And we pray that as David had that spirit, that heart for you, that we'd also have that same heart as well. We thank you, Lord, and pray that you bless our time in the word today. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Well, the person that we just read about in Psalm 8, uh, this man David, the uh, spirit that he had, uh, this psalm is describing really a person who is flourishing. In fact, I've called today's teaching a whole person uh, because David is describing a person who is living the full, complete, total, robust life that God has designed him to live. He is flourishing. Uh, He is, as the psalm shows us, humble, feels like a child in the sight of God, but yet because he has that humility, he's also strong, strong against every adversary. He is secondarily a person who has experienced and received from God meaning. Even though he feels small in comparison to the cosmos, he knows that despite his relative insignificance, he is significant because there is a God who says that he is. And thirdly, he's a man who is in control. The word that is used is the word dominion. He has dominion over his environment and atmosphere. He has self-mastery in his life. Uh, If you were to see a person like this today, you would say that this person is crushing it. They're on fire. They're at the top of their game. Uh, This person is successful in all their endeavors. Uh, This psalm is describing, for instance, a young mother who, despite all the complexities of caring for little kids in diapers, is handling those complexities with grace and dignity, trusting the Lord. Uh, This psalm is describing a small business owner who is creating something good for their community, along with an incredible workplace for their employees. Uh, This psalm is describing a retiree who, instead of spending their life on fleshly pursuits, has a calendar that is filled with making disciples of the next generation. Uh, This psalm is describing a young college student who, despite a full load, full schedule, and a 
full-time job is handling it with God's grace and strength and dignity and the dominion that God has given to them. They have, in this psalm, dominion over their environment, which, by the way, is the very thing that God designed us to have originally. We'll learn in Genesis chapter 1 that God created us to subdue the earth, to fill the earth, and to have dominion over it. And this person is living out that human experience as God designed it. They have that dominion. And the bookends of this psalm give us the secret as to how this brand of life is accomplished. You don't just stumble into it. You don't just accidentally live it. And you don't merely have it because you're a church-going person. No, at the bookends of the psalm, which are repetitions of themselves, David said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In other words, David was a man who was enraptured with God. Think of the way that he addressed God, first of all. O Lord, our Lord. In English, it sounds repetitive, the word Lord twice, but in the Hebrew language that David wrote with, it was not repetitive. The first Lord that he addressed God with would be uh, the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. Later, transcribers of scripture were uncomfortable writing down God's full name, so they would omit vowels. So maybe it's Yahweh, maybe it's Jehovah, but David had no such feeling. He was comfortable saying the name of God. God, this is who you are. I know you personally. We're in relationship together. You're the God who, when I was taking care of my father's sheep out in the wilderness, you were speaking to me, ministering to me, encouraging me. Every time I've been discouraged, every time I've needed your help, Every time I've needed a word, every time I've needed to be uplifted, God, you've been there for me. You're my loving father. We're close together. But the second Lord, Lord, our Lord, it's the word Adonai. It's a word that means master, sovereign, supreme being. David was not content with saying, you know, I'm real tight with God. I'm very close with God. He's like the great grandfather in the sky who lets me have as much candy as I want. No, David is saying, we are close. He is my father, but at the very same time, he's the master of my life. He rules me. He is supreme over me. And that's what David thought of when he thought of God. And then he says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is not David's way of saying to God, God, your name, Yahweh, Jehovah, it's beautiful. It's a cool name. Sounds nice. Rolls off the tongue. No, it was David's way of saying, God, your reputation, your character, who you have said you are and who you have revealed yourself to be, to me, it's majestic. To me, it is beautiful. To me, that name is wonderful. This is an attitude that is a far cry from the attitude of many in our modern time who think of who God has revealed himself to be in his word and question it, doubt it, or uh, feel as if it's strange and uncomfortable. No, David said, God, I love who you have revealed yourself to be. So what we have here is a man, as I said, who is completely, totally enraptured 
with God. And by beginning the psalm this way and ending the psalm this way, it's a clue for us that everything found inside of the psalm, the whole human experience that's described in this psalm, it comes to those who have that feeling, perspective, attitude, and practice about and with God. Uh, one time, many years ago, I was at a worship leaders conference. I'm not a worship leader, but I was sharing at one of the sessions. And they had brought in other worship leaders to lead this group uh, together in worship. And one of the worship leaders they brought out was Matt Redman. I'm sure you've heard his name before. He's written some great songs. He's an incredible worship leader. I'd never uh, experienced him leading worship live, and so I was really looking forward to that night, and he did a phenomenal job. He's not a performer in any way. He was leading us into the throne room of God. But in between songs, he would uh, share with us, and he has an English accent, and there's something about an English accent to me that anything that someone says with an English accent sounds really profound to me. <laughs> and I'll never forget, in between one of the songs, he just was sharing about the word alignment. And he said, you know, what's happening as we worship the Lord is we are finding our proper alignment. You know, we're coming underneath the God who made us. And when we're properly aligned to him, uh, the whole human experience that God has designed for us, it begins to flow into our lives. Dallas Willard said it this way. He said, the ideal of the spiritual life and the Christian understanding is one where all of the essential parts of the human self are effectively organized around God as they are restored and sustained by him. It's the human self fully integrated under God. That to me is what we're discovering here in Psalm 8. A person who is willing every day of their lives to have a moment of worship before God where they are integrating themselves under and around God. So the question that I have for our time together in Psalm 8 today is this. What does the psalm tell us are the results of this integration? What happens to the person who really has a heartbeat within that says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I want to show you today three results that this psalm gives us of that brand and level of life. All right. So number one is this strength. The person that lives this way, that centers themselves around God, this psalm tells us they receive the strength of God, not self-confidence, not uh, boastfulness in themselves, but the strength that God deposits into their bodies and minds and souls. Look at what David said in verse 2. He said, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you, God, have established strength because of your foes. To still, to quiet, to defeat, to silence the enemy and the avenger. What David is saying there is that the weakest version of humanity, babies and infants, the weakest version of humanity in that humble state can receive the strength of God that allows them to overcome the harshest 
enemies of God, the harshest combatants against the whole human experience. Even the weakest can be given strength. In fact, it seems as if what David is saying is that because they are weak, they receive the strength of God. This is the way of Jesus, isn't it? You know, when he came to earth, he made it very clear what God's nature and character was like. And Jesus made a beeline for the weakest person in the room. He made a beeline for those who were sick, those who were infirm, those who were disabled, those who were demonically possessed. Uh, Jesus made a beeline for those who were socially outcast and felt that they were unworthy. Jesus went straight for the weakest and deposited so often his strength into their situation and into their lives. In fact, one time Jesus was doing such a thing in bulk in the temple precincts, healing many people, so much so that little children, it says in Matthew chapter 21, they began to sing about Jesus in that moment. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna meaning save now, son of David meaning the messianic figure that we're all waiting for. These little kids started connecting the dots. Like we've heard that the Messiah is going to come one day. He's sure doing Messiah stuff. Maybe it's him. They were able to receive from Jesus. The religious leaders, though, when they heard these little children singing these messianic songs about Jesus, suggesting that he might be the very son of David that they were all waiting for, they rebuked Jesus. Said, how can you let these little children sing these things? And Jesus confronted those religious leaders with Psalm 8, verse 2. He said, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. When Jesus said that, he was putting the religious leaders in the camp of the foes and the opponents that the humble infants and babies, when they received God's strength, would defeat. These men of high intellect had disqualified themselves from receiving the strength of God because they couldn't humble themselves under Jesus's identity. But these little children, they're just saying, Jesus, this is who you are. And they're receiving the strength of God. They were enamored with Jesus, engrossed with Jesus. And this meant that even in their weakness, they were strong. This is the way of Jesus. The weaker you are and the weaker you admit to being, the more strength from God you receive. My dad was telling me a story recently of... Um, his uh, high school athletic career, and you know how it is when you're hearing from your dad about his previous sports a athletic exploits. You never know if it's true or not. There's no way to verify. But apparently he was a really good wrestler in high school. And, uh, but he told me this hilarious story about a time where his team was going up against another team who in his weight class had the uh, reigning uh, state champion on their team. So my dad was going up against this state champion that night. And he said um, that his coach pulled him aside before the match. And he thought his coach was going to give him this like exhilarating, you know, pep talk and like, you got it, Bill, you can do it. But instead of a pep talk, his coach went to him and said, um, Bill, tonight, you're, you're definitely going to lose this match. Uh, there's, there's no way that you can beat this guy. He's a phenomenal wrestler. You're good in your own right, but there's no way you can beat him. But 
this is a team sport. Our points are accumulative, and so we want to beat the other team in total. So your goal tonight, Bill, is to lose less badly than you could lose. Uh, I don't want you to lose the maximum amount of points, but the minimum amount of points. And so my dad went out there and he said, you know, the first period I just kind of lay limp and played dead and just really didn't give the guy much to work with. And so I held my own. There was nothing he could do and I wasn't doing anything back. And so it was zero, zero after one period. He said in the second period, I went out and I started having the same strategy. And then I started thinking to myself, I'm doing pretty good. And maybe I'm a better wrestler than my coach says I am. And he started thinking, I think maybe I'm going to try a move. And he said that the second that he tried a move, he was on his back, pinned, match over, lost the maximum amount of points for his team. His opponent was waiting for him to think, I'm strong. I got this. I think the enemy of our souls, the combatant against the whole human experience, he wants us to say to ourselves, I've got this. I've got life without God. I don't need his strength. I don't need to center myself around him, organize myself around him. I don't need his ability. I've got this on my own. Now, the Lord is looking for those who are able to say, I'm weak, but he is strong. I need his strength to be deposited into my life. This is being not infantile or childish, but childlike. You know, a baby, when a baby is born, it is completely dependent upon others for its survival. It needs to be fed. It needs to be held. It needs to be loved. It needs to be nurtured. It will die without that support from others. Can we have the same perspective about our relationship with God? I know that we can literally live and survive without connecting to God. But can we have a perspective that says, I can't live the whole human life as God has intended unless I regularly center myself around him and connect to him. The second result, though, of this life organized around God, the first is strength and the second is meaning. The second is meaning. And by meaning, I mean significance or purpose in life. And this is something, by the way, that people are really thirsting for and searching for in our modern time. What is the purpose of my life? What is the meaning of my life? And we live in a time and in a place and in a culture where we're being told in mass that we came from nothing and that we're going to nothing. And so our lives have no purpose and no meaning whatsoever. And that the morality that is preached at us to be lived, it's based on nothingness. We should just do it because we're told to do it. But God is the one who gives us meaning. God is the one who gives us purpose. And David connected to that in verse 3 and 4, if you read it with me again. He said, when I look at your heavens, God, when I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man?" that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. Now, it's not hard to imagine young David tending his father's sheep on the outskirts of Bethlehem, staring up at the unpolluted night sky. You know, no electricity, no big cities, no pollution. 
He would see the glory, the brilliance of those stars at night. And apparently when he saw all of that, when he considered all of that, the first impulse that he had was to say, I am so small in comparison to that. The grandiosity of the cosmos is infinite in comparison to my smallness. But despite my smallness, David then went on to say, God is, he says in verse four, mindful of me and God cares for me. He was blown away that despite his smallness, God saw him. Just as God sees you today, God knows you today, God considers you today, even if no one else on earth does. David was shocked when he saw the glory of what God had made, that God paid attention to his little, small life. Now, we might feel that David had a big advantage over us in that he lived and spent many nights in the natural world. Uh, He would. He would spend weeks at a time, perhaps even months at a time, camping out in the wilderness, caring for his father's sheep. And even when he was the king in Israel, there were many times he had to run for his life or go into battle, and he would spend nights in the open air looking at the glory of the night sky. And you might be saying to yourself, you know, if I didn't live in a concrete jungle, if I didn't live in a place with pollution, if I didn't live in a place with electricity that uh, blinds me to the glories of the heavens, I too would be conscious of my smallness in comparison to the grandeur of the cosmos. But as much as we might not live in the natural world like David did, we do have an advantage over David in that we live in a more scientifically geared and oriented world than David lived. Uh, This last summer when it was my birthday in July, uh, my family and I, we were all together and we decided that for my birthday night, we would watch a movie together. Our family is really into watching movies together. All our kids are real close together in age and they're all girls, so they are like similar uh, movies. And so, um, you know, I'll contribute and kind of throw my boats in there and try to expose them to some man, you know, movies or whatever here and there. But when it's my birthday and I know we're going to do movie night, it's like this is, it's like a golden ticket moment for me because there will be no argument at all. Like whatever I pick, that's what we're going to watch. So this last summer when it was my birthday night, I picked the movie Interstellar. I don't know if you've ever seen Interstellar. It's about seven hours long and it's about interstellar space travel and black holes and wormholes and time warps and all that kind of stuff. And it's a super confusing movie. Nobody knows what it's actually about. When it's over with, you're like, huh, I don't get it, but that was entertaining. I love Interstellar. And so I chose that movie. But that kind of storyline, David would have been so lost. Astronauts, interstellar space travel, black holes, wormholes, but these are things that we're comfortable talking about because of the scientific age that we live in. David just looked at the sun, but didn't know what he saw. We know the substance of the sun. We know the size of the sun. We're measuring the uh, amount of loss of the sun each and every day. 
When we see the stars, we know how far they are. In fact, with each successive discovery that we make, we become more in tune with our smallness. We've yet to make a discovery that shows us, oh, you know what? The universe is even smaller than we thought. No, it's just always bigger and bigger and bigger. And because of that, we should be overly and incredibly impressed that despite our smallness, God sees us. God is mindful of us. God cares for us. You see, for the person properly aligned with God, organized around God, this smallness does not depress them or make them feel that their life is of no meaning or purpose, but it gives them purpose. Some call this the paradox of man, that though we're like a speck of dust within the vast universe, God has bestowed dignity and importance on us. There's this old novel by the novelist and poet and farmer Wendell Berry uh, called Jaber Crow. Jaber is the main character of the book, and he's an old-timey barber in a small town in the Midwest. And he has a love interest in the book, and they don't get together until the very end of the book when they're in their older years. But when they're young uh, teenage uh, people... There's a moment where she walks by his barbershop and she looks at him. And he says that the brief laughing look that she had given me made me feel extraordinarily seen. As if after that, I might be visible in the dark. And to me, that's what this psalm describes. That even though we're but a dot in the expanse of God's creation, We are extraordinarily seen by God, visible in the dark to his loving eyes. Though we're conscious of our relative insignificance, God is the one who diffuses us with significance and meaning. As one pastor put it, it is only in God that we discover our origin, identity, meaning, purpose, significance, and destiny. Every other path leads to a dead end. So we get meaning from the Lord. But let's close with our third and last result of this life organized around God. We get strength from God. We get meaning from God. But we also get number three, and this is a word that you probably don't use very often to describe the Christian life and experience, but we get dominion. Dominion is our third word and result. Look at what David said in verse 5 and 6. He said, Yet you have made him, mankind, humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angelic realm, the divine. And you've crowned him, humanity, with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then he went on to list various animal species that were underneath the feet of mankind. Now, this might sound familiar to you because it is lifted from Genesis chapter 1, which I alluded to earlier. On the sixth day of creation, God said that he had made men and women in his image to have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Dominion. God made us for that 
dominion. He made us to exert dominion over our surroundings, not as tyrants, but as servants of the world that we live in. We were made to tend the earth and to cultivate the earth for our benefit, to build a human society, not as abusers of the earth, but as stewards of the earth. In in a sense, it's like God made the raw material and said to us, have at it. I put you in charge. I want you to bear out my image. I created all this, and I want you to take what I've given to you, and I want you to create as well. If Adam came over to your house after church today, and he said, I'm thirsty, and you took a glass from your cupboard and went to the faucet and turned on the faucet and filled up that glass with water, if Adam said to you, where did that come from, and how did that work? Because in my day, we were going down to rivers and we were digging wells. How, how did that work? And if you were to explain, oh, well, there's minerals in the ground that allowed us to build pipes. We formed and fit those pipes together in our cities. They're connected to a reservoir where we store the water. And when I turn it on, the pressure drives the water through those pipes and into my glass. Adam would celebrate and worship God in that moment. He would say, it's amazing to me that God put all that raw material in the earth for us to develop so that we could build that. God is amazing. That's the kind of dominion that we were meant to have, what we were meant to do. In a sense, what David is singing about in this portion of the song is that we as human beings are God's special creation. I don't know if you've ever seen like a documentary where they're uh, cataloging the life of a group of chimpanzees. You know, it's always inevitable at some point on those that they start marveling at how advanced the chimpanzees are. You know, they're so smart. They're so intelligent. Their society is so close to human society. And I'm always like, no, it's not. They're not even close. They're like picking bugs off each other's backs and eating them. They're killing each other. It's not close to our society. We are so much further advanced than than they are. We are special in God's sight. It's a position, David said in verse 5, of glory and honor. But note how the psalm states it. I don't want you to miss this because this is where we go wrong in either direction. He said that we are a little lower than the heavenly beings and that we are above the animal kingdom. It is under our feet. And the reason I say that we go wrong in either direction is because there are those who will seek to advance themselves above God. We all as Christians make this mistake from time to time where we think I know better than God. If I were God, this is what I would do. And we begin to elevate ourselves above the heavenly beings. And then there are times that we make the mistake in the opposite direction, where we live by animalistic impulses and desires and drives. And rather than receive those drives as a gift from God that are meant to be governed by God and to be operated with self-control, with boundaries, and in specific confines that lead to health and human flourishing, we just live by them to our detriment, like the animals. In fact, many people make the mistake in both directions simultaneously. 
I am smarter than God, the God of Scripture. I know better than the God of Scripture. And simultaneously, I'm going to live out my own passions, even if it kills me. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus told the story of two sons. Uh, you know the story. It's the one we refer to as the story of the prodigal son. But it's actually about a prodigal and his older brother. In the story, the younger of these two boys uh, wanted to receive all his inheritance early before his father had died. His father gave it to him and he went away to a distant land, Jesus said, and he spent his inheritance on wild living. He came to the point where he'd run out of all his resources and was forced to find work. And he found work feeding another man's pigs. And he was so impoverished that he wished in his mind, that he could eat the very slop that he'd been hired to feed to another person's swine. And he told himself, well, my father's servants have it better than this. And so if I go home, perhaps my father will let me serve as one of his servants. I can live in the servant's quarters. Perhaps my father will receive me that way. He went home and his father, seeing him on the horizon, ran to him, put the ring on his finger and killed the fatted calf and threw a great feast and said, my son who was lost is found. He was dead and now he's alive. That's when the older brother began to complain to the father about the father's actions. You never put the ring on my finger. You never killed the fatted calf for me. You never threw a feast for me, though I've served you faithfully, you never did this for me. And I hope you can see that these brothers made the mistakes that I'm talking about in this passage. The first lived by his animalistic impulses and desires, and the second thought of himself as smarter, more intelligent than his father. He questioned the authority that was over him. And we must make sure we don't commit the same error. We must be a people who, when we center ourselves around the Lord, we say, God, I'm under you, but I'm above your created order. I want to live in that sweet spot for which you have designed me. I want to be aligned with the true position that you have given to me. And when we worship the Lord personally, privately, devotionally, we are regaining that proper position afresh. So part of the reason why I always encourage people in our fellowship back in Monterey, be a person who has a private devotional life of worship before the Lord, not for legalism, not to prove your Christianity, but because of drift. We continually drift from the proper position that God has designed us for, but that time with your Lord can remind and refresh you every single day of your rightful spot above the created order, but below the creator God. Now at this point, as I wrap up this study, this teaching, there is a question that we need to ask. You know, if we're, if we're being honest, I mean, we, we, we could, we could kind of dismiss right now. We could go out in the lobby and we could be like, oh yeah, you know, that's great. That's an amazing life. The life of strength, the life of meaning, the life of dominion. Sounds good. And we could kind of even fake each other out a little bit, like we're all rocking it. 
We're all living that kind of life. I've got self-control, self-mastery, discipline, dominion. I'm living that. Strength, i got no fears. I'm confident in the Lord. Purpose and meaning, I never turn to any lesser thing like my work or relationships or my looks. I, I don't turn to any of those things for meaning. I'm always getting it from God exclusively. We could act like we're living that out. But here's the question. Who in the world is really experiencing this life? In fact, the book of Hebrews draws out this conundrum when it says in Hebrews 2, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 8, it says, God, you made humanity for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned humanity with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under humanity's feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to humanity, you left nothing outside our control. But here's the decimating sentence. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to humanity. What this passage shows us is that even though God in Genesis chapter 1 did make us for dominion, right now, it sure doesn't look like it. Though we we're made for this humble strength and purposeful significance and gentle dominion. We don't have the dominion that God made us to have. I mean, think about it. The creation, what does it do? Well, it wars against us. If we truly had dominion over the creation, we wouldn't have things like ambulances and hospitals. We, we build, we construct, but there's earthquakes and tsunamis and famines and hurricanes that are outside of our control. Beyond the creation warring against us, there's the effect of other people upon our lives. As well as we might be doing personally when people abuse us, when people fight against us, when people make decisions or commit sins or neglect responsibilities against us, we are hurt by them. We're impacted. And even ourselves, our lives, our circumstances, our schedules, they often overrun us. How often have you found yourself because of a schedule commitment that you made? that you say yes, said yes to, you find yourself overrun. I can't believe my life right now. I've got no space, no time, no margin, no energy. And even our own bodies, for as healthy as we might try to be, as much as we might try to eat right and exercise well and all of that, even our own bodies rebel against us. Every human body at some point says, hey, time's up. <laughs> it happens to all of us. We don't seem to have the dominion that this psalm is telling us that we have. And we know the reason why. It's because we're not living in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. We're living in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, so did depravity and so did death. There's no one that is living this life except for Jesus. Jesus came and had full and total dominion, full and total control. He had no fear, was completely confident, and he knew his purpose through and through and never wavered from it. And Hebrews 
goes on to tell us about this. To continue that quotation that I started a few minutes ago, it says in Hebrews 2 verse 7, but here's what we do see. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The good news, brothers and sisters, is that when you are not living this life, when that's not your experience, when you're feeling fearful, when you're looking to the wrong things for your purpose, and when you don't have self-control, self-mastery, or dominion, the good news is that Jesus has all of those things. He came and lived the perfect life for every single one of us and died a death in our place and rose from the grave so that when we believe in him, we can have the everlasting righteousness and life with God. And here's the beautiful truth I want to announce to you today. Because Jesus did that, you and me, if we believe in him, can progressively get back the boldness, fearlessness, and courage the purpose and significance and meaning and the dominion and self-control and mastery that we were meant to have. It says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, that as we behold is in a glass the glory of the Lord, as we fellowship with Jesus, as we spend time with Jesus, we are being transformed, it says, into the same image. We're becoming like Jesus, the one with all this dominion and boldness and purpose and meaning. We're becoming like him from glory to glory, it says, incrementally, slowly but surely. And Paul says, this comes by the Spirit of the Lord. It is Jesus, by his Spirit, who can change and transform our lives. There's a famous children's book that was written in French originally, but translated into English and very popular called The Little Prince. I love children's literature. And in this book, there's a boy, he's the little prince, and he lives on a faraway planet, like an asteroid. He's all by himself. And because of his loneliness, he decides to go on a journey to visit all the other planets until he comes to planet Earth. Uh, And when he does, he comes to a desert wasteland where there are no people. And so his first interactions with species on Earth is with uh, animals. And One day on his journey, he meets a fox. He'd never seen a fox before. And so he begins talking with the fox. This is fiction. I hope you guys are tracking with me right now. (laughs) He starts talking with the fox and he asks him, what is your life like? I want to read to you a quotation as we close today. The fox said to the little prince, my life is monotonous. I hunt chickens and men hunt me. All chickens are alike and all men are alike. So I get a little bored. But if you tame me, my life will be full of sunshine. I shall recognize the sound of a step different from all others. The other steps send me hurrying underground. Yours will call me out of my burrow like the sound of music. And look yonder. Do you see the cornfields? I don't eat bread. Wheat is of no use to me. Those cornfields don't remind me of anything, and I find that rather sad. But you have hair the color of gold, so it will be 
marvelous when you've tamed me. Wheat, which is also golden, will remind me of you, and I shall love the sound of the wind in the wheat. The fox became silent and gazed for a long time at the little prince. I beg of you, tame me. When I read that, I thought that perfectly depicts to me my life outside of Jesus. It's monotonous. It's boring. I'm filled with fear. I can't even appreciate what's around me. I'm an untamable species without him. But when he came into my life, he began to give me meaning and purpose and significance and courage and dominion as he slowly but surely from glory to glory has been taming my life. And I'm sure many of you would say the same today. So let's thank him and pray to him. Lord, we come to you this morning and we are thankful to you for this brand of life, a life centered around and upon you. And we pray, Lord, that as we walk with you every single day, Lord, we pray and ask that our lives would be filled with that strength, with that meaning and purpose and significance, and with that dominion that you've called us to live in. Lord, we thank you and I pray for your blessing upon this church, Lord, that you would uh, have the greatest, most fruitful days of their lives yet future. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Refuge Calvary Chapel Huntington Beach. For more information about our ministry, please visit refugefamily.com or call 714-891-9495.